listening to the Nutmeg Arena by the Nutmeg Assist. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of the TNA podcast brought to you by the Nutmeg Assist. Myself the host Ritwik and I'm joined today by a special guest Stephen Drennan from Crack Stats. He's been here before and he's vividly known by the name Babu Yago on Twitter as well. Welcome once again to the show Stephen. Thanks very much Ritwik. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing. I'm doing pretty good right now. So positive news around the world um, about the vaccine, the progress of the vaccine. Then Donald Trump's account getting suspended. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's pretty good. Yeah, it's been a crazy week. Uh, yeah. it's, it's kind of like one of those weeks where, if you watched it on a film, it wouldn't feel it would feel too unrealistic. It's just yeah. like, nah, that would never happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a crazy crazy week of course and it i mean we had an amazing time speaking to you last uh, probably was it in july or uh, august i guess uh, it's been quite a long time uh, it was a fun episode that time and i think the listeners enjoyed that as well because we had some really amazing reception and the topic pretty much is same for today as well which is the premier league the season so far is what we're going to look at and as of now the, in the table liverpool are still at the top despite a lot of fans moaning left and right including myself i've i've also moaned a bit um manchester united are in second and they could actually go on top before uh, they face off liverpool at anfield next sunday because they have a game midweek game against burnley which i probably think they might win and manchester city are coming back again in form leicester are there up to the top aston villa are also among the mix which has been a really big surprise this season chelsea after all the business in the summer they've had their struggles but they're again a decent team to look out for spurs also in the mix and arsenal finally seem to somehow come back after that poor poor slump and at the bottom of the table you have sheffield united who are struggling and probably or i think this might there's a big chance of this happening as well sheffield united might mostly end up being the you know first team to ever get relegated points wise derby county might probably get that record off their heads so stephen coming on first to liverpool um no one probably expected van dijk and gomez to get the, such a lengthy layoff the injuries were pretty bad not just pretty bad it was really really bad and the timing as well was was awful and liverpool decided not to sign a fourth choice center back in the summer they had they have virgil van dijk joe gomez joel matip as third option fourth choice obviously probably klopp might have thought okay fabinho might be good enough for the season this old day and lovren but it has kind of come back to haunt them and you can't really blame them because the two injuries that liverpool have had are completely something that is unavoidable so stephen uh, i mean there's been a lot of talk about signing a center back in january and the journalist who are pretty much reliable when it comes to liverpool people like james pierce paul joyce etc have said that there might not be any movement this january Do you think a centre back is a necessity? Yeah, well, speaking about the journalists, first of all, I think um, we're increasingly seeing from the club every single window 
Um, they're always playing down what they're going to do. And if that means they're doing nothing, it means they're going to play it down. And it also means if they're going to do something, they're going to play it down. So we're never quite sure what it means. Like in, in the summer, I think we were all surprised by the fact that we signed Tiago and Jota in the space of a couple of days because we all expected them not to buy anything. That was the clear message that was coming out. We were playing down the fact that we were going to sign anyone. Um, and and then going into the season with just three centre-backs, I think it was clear that um, once we signed Thiago, we didn't really need him in terms of numbers in midfield, but in terms of quality, he's obviously a step up from from what we, we often have. And, and so the idea that maybe um, if we got an injury and we needed Fabinho to play as a defender for the season, we would be well-stocked in midfield. But the problem is, is that with so many players getting so many injuries that it, it becomes a compounding problem. So you've got the likes of um, Thiago, Keita, uh, Alex Oxlade-Chamberlain and Fabinho that have barely played a minute in midfield this season. Um, and at one point when I looked, uh, Curtis Jones is picking up his, uh, more minutes than anybody except for Wijnaldum over a, a sort of 15 or 10 or 15 game period. And that's crazy because he, like, he was a youth teamer last season. So it's, it, it's, it's kind of... I don't think anybody could have predicted there would be so many problems, but it is also a caution against signing players, I guess, that pick up injuries. Like, Thiago was unfortunate um, in, in terms of the tackle, and Keita wasn't an injury-prone player in, in Germany. Um, but uh, the fact that we've got so many players on injuries at the moment, it, it means we need to look out for players like Jeannie Wijnaldum that, that basically never get injured. Um and a lot of people sort of debate his quality, and, and I'm not one of them. Anki is a top quality midfielder, but um, the fact that he's constantly available is probably the one thing that was saving our season at one point, because he was pretty much playing every minute of every game. And out of the, the centre-backs and midfielders, he was the only player that was fit to do so, which is just absolutely crazy. So, yeah, it's been a, a, a weird one up to this point. In terms of signing a centre-back in, in January... Uh, I tweeted the other day, I think we need to sign two centre-backs in the next six months. And I don't think it matters too much whether that's January or the summer. Because if we were to sign someone today, there, there's no training sessions at all to start betting these people in, which means we'll have to throw them into games. And I think whenever, if you look at all the centre-backs that come into the Premier League, almost all of them, um, whenever they first come to the Premier League, they, they make mistakes as they're adjusting to the league. And I think there's going to be little difference in terms of a new centre-back or playing Reese Williams in terms of how many points that might cost you if they make a mistake. And so in the short term, it probably isn't going to make a huge difference. But if you can bet him in over the summer, and maybe getting him in now would be better in that sense, um, then, then you would start to see an improvement. The one exception would be if you can sign someone that's like a Van Dyke-level player, but I, I just can't see that happening because if you look at the Van Dyke deal, it took months to do. Uh, he's like a, a top tier player and it, it didn't just happen overnight. And um, I, I don't think we, we have anyone, we had anyone lined up because it would have been done since the window opened. So I think however, if we sign someone this window, it'll probably be someone like Botman or someone on that level who, who's basically an up and coming centre back who's going to make mistakes and he's, he's going to need to be better in and we'll need to be patient with him. And and that just seems to be short supply on our fan base. So um, I'm not sure how that would work out either. So it'll be an interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, with Van Dyke, you get uh, quality in almost every aspect because, I mean, that is something that, 
Liverpool have been missing since his injury, the build-ups, the long diagonals, the way he attracts uh, opposition pressure and completely breaks opposition lines through one or two passes or one long diagonal or one long pass to our uh, wide forwards as well. And also the wonderful defending, the anticipation and most importantly, aerial prowess. Um, Liverpool were, I guess, the fourth best or the third best last season in terms of aerial success. This season, they are the fourth worst team. So, sorry, it's their third worst team. Arsenal and Southampton are the only teams who are probably performing worse than them in terms of aerial duels, the success rate. And that's actually a, a, a big issue, I would say, Stephen, because... I mean, I've seen teams target us aerially as well. The likes of West Brom, they got the goal via uh, header. Um, Newcastle were trying for that. Um, Fulham were also initially trying for that. Uh, they were catching us left and right. Um, you can expect Burnley to try the same as well. And maybe Manchester United as well. Um, on inset pieces, most importantly. So that is something uh, which is a worrying aspect. Um, the, the lack of proper aerial strength in the team right now. And if if Liverpool were to recruit a centre-back, in your opinion, what would be... I mean, obviously, it would be hard to recruit someone like Van Dijk. And it would be hard to buy big players like Dio Pomecano, Ibrahim Akonate, I mean, the big players who who definitely been linked with the club. Um, so, if you had to, like, uh, compromise on certain... You know, certain, what do you call, certain strengths of a centre-back and which one probably, I mean, probably if you had to pick two or three important strengths that you would like to see in an incoming centre-back this January, what would those three things be? Yeah, on the first thing, just about compromising, uh, I think the interesting thing about Liverpool in recent seasons is um, we don't seem to compromise on transfers like... uh, we have an idea in our mind of what we want and if we can't get it now we would rather wait however long it takes to get that than just get the next best thing um and and we saw it with van dyke people were in a state of panic whenever the van dyke transfer collapsed because we needed a center back and everybody wanted us to sign someone i remember one of the players that was linked with us um the people wanted us to sign was hawides from uh shalka i'm probably butchering his name by the way but um and it was just interesting because he's kind of like one of those mediocre players that's just not going to improve anything. But it was just like people wanted us to sign a centre-back for the sake of signing someone, as in compromise on what we, we probably need, which is a high-quality centre-back to lead the team, just to get a body in there that isn't called Dejan Lovren. So, um, yeah, I, I don't think we'll compromise. I think it's literally, if we, we have people in mind that we want, if we can't get them, we'll just wait. But because we just don't do anything in the short term. And, and I kind of like that. I think that's the reason why we've been successful. We don't have this... Um, I, I remember looking back to the Brendan Rodgers years and, and the Rafa Benitez year, pretty much every every year up until now, really. We always ended up with a load of clutter in our team, which was basically players that were signed, which were kind of... They were never really Liverpool quality, but we signed them and we gave them a chance. And then they're on your books and then you struggle to get rid of them. And, and then we're just not doing that anymore. That probably the only player I can think of recently that we've signed like that would be uh, uh, Minamino, where it was a low-value transfer. But then information comes out that we've actually been tracking him for, for years. Like Jurgen Klopp's been interested in him since he was back in Japan. Um, and 
so clearly that isn't the case. He's another player that is someone that we wanted for a long, long time and finally got him. And it just happened to be a really cheap deal. He isn't just like someone bought the fill of space in the team. So um, it's interesting. In terms of what we'll sign and, and in terms of a centre-back, two of the names that were linked with us were um, uh, uh, Torres in, in La Liga and um, Alaba from Bundesliga. And the interesting thing looking at both of them is they're really weak on aerial duels. Um, Torres is not aggressive at all. He averages like, I think it's like 0.5 aerial duel wins per match. And Alaba is the same. He averages less than 50% win rate in his career. And also he's like uh, not aggressive in the air. Uh, and I think that's clearly what Jurgen Klopp's going to want. He's going to want someone that will attack the ball in the air because it is a, a problem for us. And all the centre-backs he targets tend to fit that mould. He, he likes people that are big and aggressive. It's why he liked Lovren, even when fans hated Lovren. Um, he used to bring him in against teams like Huddersfield and Cardiff, teams that we'd try long throws against us. He wants a guy that's going to take charge of situations, be aggressive and attack the ball. And the problem with that is the more you do that, the more mistakes you'll likely make because you're taking more risks as a defender. And we tend to have... a uh, a, a low want for risk when it comes to defenders. We want the defenders who don't take risks, therefore don't make mistakes, and therefore don't get embarrassed and sort of highlight real things. But I think Klopp's the opposite. He he had Subotic at Dortmund, who is exactly the same. He would take loads of risks. He was very aggressive. There's some absolutely hilarious mistakes he's made that you can find on YouTube. But uh, Jurgen Klopp loved him. Um, and then he, par- he partnered him with someone like Hummels, who's a, a Rolls-Royce Van Dyke type of defender. So it'll be interesting what he signs. And if you remember, I was saying, I think we need to sign two defenders. I think we need one of each. I think we need someone who's very aggressive, but also someone who's a bit uh, more standoffish and calm and reserved. He'll watch and read the game. Um, essentially, what I'm saying is we need to sign a John Terry and a Ricardo Carvalho. Um, we basically need a new partnership. And the reason being is that the Van Dyke and Gomez injuries are both the sort of injuries that can have a negative impact on the rest of your career. Um, a lot of players don't return to play in the same way. And in uh, the NBA, for example, Joe Gomez's injury is the type of injury that uh, ends a lot of careers because it affects your ability to jump. And that was already a problem with Joe Gomez in terms of aerial duels. He was very weak. So um, I think we have to hope they come back at the same level but at the same time, sign two new centre-backs so that we're covered if they don't. And the worst-case scenario is we end up with five high-quality defenders in our books, and then we simply move on the one that's oldest and most injury-prone, which is Joel Maddup, um, because he can't be the cover for two guys that are coming back from long-term injuries, and we don't know what their season's going to be like next year, never mind this year. So it's, it's a difficult situation. Um, so yeah, that's what I think we, we need to do in terms of defenders, um, and hopefully it's close to what we actually do. Yeah, you're absolutely right there. The kind of injuries is also another worrying fact, and although we've seen uh, Van Dyke's recovery videos and fans are actually really optimistic about him, um, I think we should probably keep, uh, you know, uh, or we should probably expect uh, the worst, because that's the kind of injuries that they've both, both Gomez as well as Van Dyke have suffered. And I mean, moving on to Liverpool's attack, actually, Stephen, last season they had a decent shot quality, which was, I guess, the top five in the league uh, 
0.12 non penalty xg per shot uh, so i i probably probably put that as shot quality in a sense and this season as well it's been the same but last season liverpool kind of overperformed their xg by a huge huge margin this season it's comparatively on the edge so liverpool have kind of uh, missed some really good chances as well as you might have seen the newcastle game where sala and firmino both had uh, pretty good chances to score and you know completely avoid the criticism that the midfield got but do you think this is probably something that should worry the fans yeah it, it's an interesting one because at the moment we're the top goal scorers in the league i think we've got four more goals than any other side but people aren't happy with our attack so it's it's kind of a strange one um i i made a, a post during the week uh, about how the injuries the our defenders is affecting our attack uh, essentially if we can't build up the play from the back in the same way we, we tend to just be trying to force it forward a lot and the ball just comes back at us a lot and i think one of the consequences of that is that Firmino ends up dropping a lot deeper and Mohamed Salah ends up a lot more isolated and he gives the ball away a lot more. Um, and it, I think it's just one of those things where in, in football, I think people don't appreciate how important psychology or, or how a player feels, I guess, how important that is. But if you're if you're Mohamed Salah and, and you're playing in a match and, and the ball isn't really coming to you too much, I mean, it does, you don't have a lot of support, you end up just basically snap trying to make the most out of the ball every time you get it you try to force things a lot more you take on low quality shots rather than trying to work it off someone to create a better shooting opportunity um and it's also the case of if you think your team's not going to create better chances than what you're getting now you tend to just snatch at everything and so although we were overperforming xg last season and we're we're, we're not as um, performing as well against it this season that, that could just simply be a, a psychological issue whereby the players think, um, we're not, I'm not going to get another chance. I need to take this one. And they're putting maybe too much pressure on themselves or um, they're, they're worrying about things. And again, they're also human. So all the things that we're worrying about that we were talking about before that's happening in the world, it affects them as well. Um, we're, we're all human. Like Just because you've got lots of money, it doesn't mean you don't have friends and family around the world that are, that are in trouble. Guardiola's mum died of COVID, so it it affects everyone. Um, no one's a uh, no one's isolated from this in any way. So it's if we're worrying about it and it's keeping us awake at night, it's probably affecting them in, the, in some way as well. And I think the difference we've seen between a player at 100% and a player at 95% it's a massive drop off at elite sport. And so those little things that take a little bit out of your performance that are going against us at the moment. Um, it just makes us look like a really bad team. When we're not, we're just not quite... It, it's like Jurgen Klopp said, things just aren't going our way at the moment. Um, and it's affecting us. So, uh, yeah, it's an interesting one. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about overperforming your XT, the one team who are massively, massively overperforming their XT is Southampton. And they beat Liverpool very very recently and Hassan Hotel was crying and um, I love Ralph Hassan Hotel because he's an up I, I feel that he's a really really amazing manager he's a really top guy as well and they play some really good football Southampton so I mean probably they, they deserve that win as well because they played uh, really well against us they kind of 
neutralized us in a way i would say um, and they are massively overperforming their xg this season although they've had danny ings out for a small period of time do you think this is sustainable stephen for southampton or do you think they might probably again drop down to mid table which is kind of their realistic expectation uh it's another one of those things i, I said at the start of the season that, that this year any team that doesn't have many midweek matches is going to have a much bigger advantage than they did in previous seasons because the teams at the top like like us um that have games seemingly every single minute um of the week we seem to be involved in a game uh we're we're struggling to find training sessions to try and find some sort of rhythm and form and work on problems and um, work on our build-up play, things like that, make changes whenever we have injuries um, and then adjust for them in training so we're not trying to adjust the matches. Whereas a team like Southampton, I think they, they get knocked out of the League Cup in literally the first match. And so that's been their only additional game this season other than the league. And Aston Villa's in a similar situation as well. They've had a, a pretty much free run at the league. And I think it's really, really helped them. Um, and in terms of overperforming XG, it, it's that thing about confidence again. It's um, If you believe in what you're doing and you believe it's going to work, then it gives you an advantage over when you don't. Uh, it's just one of those things. Like if you're throwing a dart at a dartboard and you believe you can hit the bullseye, and you keep doing it, you, you'll, you'll eventually get it. But if you think, I'm never going to do this, and you just sort of give up on yourself, you just won't be able to do it. Uh, and it's it, it's one of those things where the skill improves the more you're doing it, and the more you believe that it's going to improve. So um, what I would say is anytime a team is over or underperforming XG, one of two things will happen. Um, either it will regress to the mean, or the ability of, of what you're doing will start to improve while you're doing it. So if, if you believe you're going to score more goals, you'll create better chances. Your XG will increase and bring it up more towards what you're doing. Um, it tends to go one of those two ways. Um, so people always focus on XG. They always think when a team's overperforming by too much, like overperforming by, say, 30 or 40%, they're always going to regress. But the opposite can happen as well, whereby their underlying numbers can improve in line of what they're doing. Um, and that, that, we often see that with a new managerial appointment where a team will overperform with a new manager and then it'll either dip very quickly down towards what it should be or the players will start to improve in training and in line with what they're doing and start uh, actually improving their underlying numbers. Yeah, absolutely. That you, you are actually correct. And I think it also depends on where you're taking the shot from and when the, the kind of shots you take as well. Yeah, I mean, um, things like headers, for example, are... are um, more prone to variance, I guess, with XG because there's uh, much fewer of them. Um, and the difference between taking a header from a ball that's five foot off the ground, that's six foot off the ground and seven foot off the ground isn't really measured in terms of XG for most models. Whereas if you, like the example I always use is the Kyle Walker header against us last season, where the ball hit the top of his head and pretty much went a mile over the goal, yet it was a 0.82 XG chance. And the, he could never score that chance. He would need to grow half a foot to score that chance because he just simply, he was at his maximum leap and the ball still hit the top of yeah. his head. So how is he ever going to score that chance? But because XG doesn't take into account the height of the, the ball, that just didn't get taken into account. It was a header from five yards out that went over the bar. And they thought, oh, he should have scored that. So it's 0.82. 
not the way it is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you spoke about Kyle Walker, and that's where I want to come in next. Manchester City. Pep Guardiola sadly lost his mother early this season due to COVID, and I think that kind of psychologically affected him as well. Um, City did not start the season well. They were having troubles in the attacking front, which is quite strange when you talk about Manchester City, despite all the players that they have. They had Aguero out for some time as well. Uh, he was actually out with an injury. They had COVID issues as well with a lot of their players that they, they even have it now, thanks to Benjamin Menti's irresponsible you know, responsibility, I would say. And they started the season slowly, but they are now picking up form. Their signing, their big signing, Ruben Diaz, has been, I would say, he's kind of like a no-nonsense defender. I heard people, I've seen people compare him with uh, Virgil van Dijk, but I would say he's more of a John Terry than a Virgil van Dijk. And I think that's that's kind of something that City needed. And also John Stones's uh, come back into form. He's been really, really good and he's actually replaced Aymeric Laporte really well. And City are now kind of finding their attacking rhythm as well. Kevin De Bruyne has stepped up his form as well. And obviously, I think you can never rule out Manchester City from a title race, Stephen. But do you think, I mean, do you think they are the only team who can probably put up like a long run of uh, you know, unbeaten? They can probably... Are they the only team, do you think, who can put up like a proper streak going into the season, to, towards the end of the season, I mean? Yeah, I mean, um, the thing with Man City, uh, for me, they're the perfect example of Rafa Benitez's short blanket um, analogy, uh, where he said, um, football's a lot like owning a short blanket. If you pull it up, uh, your feet will get cold, and if you pull it down, your shoulders get cold. And I think that's what we've seen with Manchester City this season is, They've changed their, their, the shape of their team and they have more men behind the ball now. So they're dealing with counterattacks better, which means their defenders aren't being exposed, which means they look like better defenders. Um, and I'm not saying Ruben Diaz isn't a good defender. I'm saying you need to look at things through that prism of more has changed rather than one person. Uh, Rodri wasn't a good defensive midfielder on his own, but now that he's got someone next to him, he seems to be doing better. John Stones wasn't a good defender when he was being exposed every week and losing confidence, but now that he's not, he's doing a lot better. Uh, Ruben Diaz is obviously a good player. His fundamentals are very good. He doesn't, he does all the basic things really well, and I think that's undervalued in football. Um, and I think you see it a lot with Dutch players, uh, but they they get their fundamentals spot on, and it, it, it's very refreshing to see. And Ruben Diaz is, is similar in that sense. Uh, he, he does all the basic things really, really well. Uh, and I think it's underappreciated, but it, it's such a strength when, when you can do that because um, it means you're, you're, the platform for your performances is always a high one. It's like Steve Finnan. He was never a 10 out of 10 player, but he never got below seven because he's just all his fundamentals were really solid. Um, and I think that's what they have in Ruben Diaz, someone who doesn't have, he's never going to have a David Luiz type game. Um, whose performances are either great, which is rare, or terrible, which is frequent. Um, and he, he's rarely just like a, an average defender. He's always living it to extremes. I think we had that a bit with Lovren as well, I guess. Um, Lovren had his good games and his absolutely horrific ones and, and sort of very little in the middle. Um, but yeah, I think that's what happened with Man City this season is they've made a structural change to their system. 
And then going back to what we were saying about attacking play, a, a lot based on uh, feeling and confidence. Because they had fewer men in attack, they weren't creating the same types of chances that there were before. They didn't have as many men. They weren't finding it as easy to create overloads. And so they're underperforming their XG this season, which is kind of rare for them. And that just comes down to their attackers feeling something's different, something's not right. It doesn't feel the same way when I get the ball. The player I usually have here to support me isn't there. Um, and so you sort of just, uh, you, you you lose a bit of a uh, confidence and you start snatching at chances. You start underperforming. And I think that's um, a big part of what we're seeing with Man City this season. They struggled in attack, but they're stronger in defence uh, because that's where their focus was this season in being stronger in defence. They recognised that the way they were playing and having games where the XG was like four versus two meant that they were more likely to lose than if their XG was 2.5 versus zero um, or uh, 0.5, sorry. Um, it, it's the same difference of two XG, but you're a lot more likely to win if you're keeping the number of chances down in a game but absolutely dominant, dominating the number of chances that you're getting. So, uh, yeah, I think that's what's happening with Man City this season. In terms of whether they can go on a long winning run, um, it, it's the way Man City used to play was the best way to build up as many points as possible in a league because you're going to put to the sword lots of teams uh, because you're just going to overwhelm them and attack. But they would lose a lot of random games. Uh, as a result, and I think this season they're trying to be more like, like I said, like a Rafa Benitez team or a Diego Simeone team, I guess, um, where they're trying to keep the chances down but just dominate the, the chances that are in the game. Um, I, I don't know if they'll go on a, a long winning run, but they'll definitely have long streaks where they don't lose games anymore. I, I think between us, Manchester City and Manchester United, a, any of those three could go on a long winning streak and just jump out in front of the other. And I think with no no European football for another sort of six weeks or so, it'll be interesting to see if anyone can do that. Because I think when the European football starts up again, it might become a lot more random again. And we start seeing those results creep in where Man City lose 5-2 to Leicester, we lose 7-2 to Villa, United lose 6-1 to Spurs. It's just these random results pop up that don't really reflect on the quality of the team getting hammered. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. And I mean, you spoke about Manchester United. It is there. Um, I mean, we spoke, we had a podcast on Manchester United last week uh, with Ninad. But I just wanted to have uh, get your opinion as well on United. They since that Spurs game, they've been like really good, really solid. Um, Bruno's having like um, probably his best uh, ever. He's uh, probably in his best ever shape uh, when you look at his whole career as well. Do you think they are legit title challenges, Stephen? Or do you think this is again, once again, and Solskjaer uh, has has a habit of going on this particular good periods as well. And then there's a big blip and again, uh, the media starts criticizing him and the team. Do you think this particular run is again another such period or do you think there is actually a proper improvement and they should pro- probably be considered as a proper title challenger? Yeah, Manchester United are an interesting one. The the thing I would say about them is they sort of just jump from extremes. Um, and under Solskjaer, where they they went on such a long run of games where they were great when he first came in. I think it was like his first 18 games or so. They were great, and then they were awful. Like just there was nothing in between. They just went straight down to awful, and they were awful for a very long time. And then they jumped back up to being good again. And 
the, the interesting thing from my point of view is whenever that happens, it tends to be you've got a lot of quality players that are capable of doing really good things. And when those players are happy and confident, they'll do good things. But it's also kind of fragile because if the players don't have the right, if there's not a lot of leadership and mental strength in the team, that can collapse just as quickly as it, as it appeared. Um, and that's what happened to them in the past. And, and when you look at the Manchester United team, there isn't really a lot of leadership in there. I think one of the, 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 the leaders in the team is probably Scott McTominay, and he, he's kind of young. Um, and apart from and Marcus Rashford's obviously a, a, a nice kid, and he's got a very strong head in his shoulders, but I don't know if he's like a, a leadership from a sports point of view. I don't really see him doing a lot of leading. And um, Bruno's obviously come in, and he's, he's made a... He's basically become their Coutinho, whereby he's their linchpin. Like, literally everything goes through him. So his numbers are fantastic. But if you stop him, does everything stop? And I think that's what's happened to them in big games. I think they're averaging, like, I think it's like half a point in the, the games against the the big seven, I guess, the media call them, from the Premier League, which is the, the big six plus Leicester. Um, so I think against good teams that know how to stop Bruno, and make him ineffective, they can essentially just stop United in their tracks, um, which is interesting. Um, so I think they're they're basically becoming flat track bullies, whereby they have too much quality for the smaller sides, and and having a player like Coutinho, when we had him or Bruno now, means he has very good numbers, but it also means they're they're kind of more predictable and easier to stop when they face bigger sides. They know how to shut them down. Um, I think that probably makes them more effective in a league than a cup because in, in cups, uh, if teams can shut you down and make you ineffective, you'll just fall out of the cup. Whereas in a league, um, they're going to play f- like sort of 14 teams where they can, sorry, 13 teams where they can just run them over. And the other seven, if they're not picking up many points, um, it isn't too much of a problem if they're maximizing the points in the other teams. Um, so. I think that was always what Alex Ferguson's teams were also aiming to do as well. But I think his teams were very, very strong mentally. So they, they would pick up a lot of points against the rest of the big sides, usually done very well there. But they definitely set up just to run through teams. They had players like Kinchalskis and Giggs, um, who would just, they were absolutely unstoppable. No one could match them on their own. Uh, and they would just destroy teams from the wings. So um, I, th- I think he's maybe just trying to follow Alex Ferguson's blueprint for how to make a team that can do well in the league. But I think he's still lacking a few things in there that would make them a really top side as opposed to a team that's doing well at the moment in the league. Um, I think he's maybe missing a player like like a Roy Keane, uh, Peter Schmeichel, Gary Pallister, Rio Ferdinand, those sort of really strong leaders with very strong heads on their shoulders. Uh, I think he's probably lacking some a few of those players at the moment, which would take them up to the next level of, of a, a proper top tier side. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And moving on from Manchester United now, Stephen, to another surprise team of the season. And this is again part of uh, the patron question from one of our patron data. Aston Villa, do you think they've been the surprise package? Because uh, less than 1% error from goal line technology kept them in the Premier League last season. They went on to do some really, really amazing business, I would say, because Wally Watkins, Emiliano Martinez, Matty Cash, 
they were actually sensible signings in my opinion and now they find themselves in the top end of the table do you think they are the surprise package and maybe one of the giant killers this season um i i remember doing a bit of research on this a while back but basically teams that win the premier league tend to do their investment the season before they win it not the season they actually win it uh the exception to that along with pretty much every other rule is lesser but usually about 80% of the minutes for players that um on on the pitch that win the league are players who have been at the club for like 12 to 16 months uh, 12 to 18 months at least before the season started um and the reason this applies to villa is they were last season's biggest spenders but those are players all coming in new to a club a lot of them new to the premier league and it was always probably going to take a year before we seen the best of those players and so for a year they struggled and just about survived relegation but with that experience and neither had time to adjust to the level of football and probably for a lot of them the the difference in culture and language and everything else now we're seeing the quality that they brought in um and it'll be interesting from that point of view looking at a team like less uh leads next season because leads were the big spenders in the summer and also chelsea uh again another team that um had a big spend and the players that they bought aren't kind of doing anything yet uh and i think that's the same with leads players like uh is it lorente they signed in defense i think he's had one appearance um rodrigo hasn't really shown yet um in the way that he could so a, a lot of their a lot of their star players or players are ready there um and i think uh, it'll be interesting to watch leads and uh chelsea next season from that point of view but going back to villa i didn't predict it would happen but i sort of should have seen it as a possibility and i'm sort of annoyed at myself that i didn't um because they spent so much money and they brought in so much quality once that settled down and if even they had a 60% success rate with them they had the core there of a lot of very good young players and they don't even have wesley available yet um and he's probably one of the better signings that they made he was absolutely quality last season until he got injured so yeah uh they look good at the moment it's it, they're not overperforming their numbers either it's they're they're doing what they should be doing they're keeping chances down and they're maximizing the chances they make whenever they get the the ball the other end so they're they're just a good team and it's taken a lot of people by surprise but it also goes back to that other thing i said if they had european football this season if they had two games a week every week how much cheap with difference would that make because we also saw with Sean Dice's Burnley as soon as they got into Europe they absolutely collapsed they were in the relegation zone by christmas uh and it was only the second half of the season whenever they had time to recover from all the extra matches at the start of the season because of Europe it was only after christmas they really recovered and actually scraped their way out of the relegation zone and got into like mid table again so that will be the challenge for teams like Leeds and and Villa will be if they end up in Europe how do they manage that um with Bielsa I would have confidence he would manage it better because um he, he's got a lot of experience playing in Europe he's been there before his Atletico Bilbao uh Atletico Bilbao team is one of the most fun teams I've ever watched in European competition it was absolute joy to watch him he played like a, a 3-3-3-1 formation and at times it was just incredible to watch he'd never seen anything like it so it's it'll be interesting to see what happens with them um i'm very happy for villa doing well uh, i've got uh, one of my close friends is a from a childhood is a, a big villa fan and i've always wanted them to do well just for him 
um, because uh, he, he, he's passionate about football and I want to see my friends enjoy it in the same way I do because uh, it's not fun supporting your team when they're struggling. I think we all know that from the Hodge scenario. So um, I'm, I'm happy they're doing well for him um, and they, they deserve it. They're, they're, they're playing good football. Um, I, I think, as always, it will be interesting to see if they can compete with the bigger teams whenever they have the same amount of games. Yeah, and one player that's been really stand out is Jack Grealish. And I would like to actually call Jack Grealish a player who's who's a people pleaser. Players like Jack Grealish, Aidan I mean, these players are technically so good. Uh, they're so pleasing to watch on the eye as well. And that's why I call them people pleaser. But there's been like two sides uh, when, when, when you talk about Jack Grealish. I've heard. Uh, I, I like I've seen people being split whether he would actually be uh, you know be able to perform at the same level at a big club like Liverpool or Manchester City because at Villa everything goes through him it's pretty much similar to what United have with Bruno everything probably goes through Jack Rillis they try to get the ball as much as possible to him make him create chances for his team as well so Stephen do you think Grealish might actually excel if he's put in a team like Liverpool or Manchester City or do you think he's probably good at where he is right now at Aston Villa yeah it's, it's the same thing I said earlier I actually made the comparison on Twitter recently about um, Jack Grealish and Coutinho um, I think we're we're built in a way now that we don't play that way we don't play with a linchpin and the ball just goes through them we're we're trying to build a a team where the parts can change in and out and the performance doesn't drop off too much. Like, um, if you look back at that game against um, Barcelona, for example, where we won 4-0 and we didn't have Firmino or Salah, I think if you go back to the Coutinho era, we don't win that game without Coutinho, which is weird because he wasn't on the pitch, but it was just the fact that our entire system is dependent on him being on the pitch. So when he wasn't, we, we didn't really have a plan. And likewise, whenever teams shut down Coutinho, we didn't have a plan. We, we were like, oh, okay, well, I guess we'll just keep giving them a ball and hope something happens, hope it changes, because that, that's what we were doing. Um, so I think uh, if you sign a player like that, you have to build a team around them. And United have done that with Bruno. But I don't think we could do that with, with a Bruno or a Grealish. And I don't think they would have anywhere near the same impact here, simply because um, we wouldn't build the whole system around them. Um and that's a good thing. But the problem is at the moment, I see with Twitter, Twitter's all about the fanboy accounts. It's basically finding a player that you fanboy and you put him as your avatar and you proclaim him to be better than everyone else. And you get stats that show <laughs> that that player's better than everyone else. And so at the moment, if, if you have a player like Coutinho, for example, you can compare him to Liverpool players now and say, oh, we'd be much better with Coutinho. But we wouldn't, it, it doesn't work like that because we're very, very different now that he's left. And signing a player like Coutinho wouldn't be a good thing for us. It would mean we'd have to change the system to accommodate him. And change and transition is never, it, it always has a negative impact on the short term. Because whenever you're trying to adjust to a new system to accommodate a new player, it, it, it takes time to do that. And during that time, there'll be teething problems. And there isn't any promise when you come out the other side, things will be better either. So, yeah, I don't think Jack Gooley should do well here. In terms of him going to Man City, it's pretty much the same thing, except even worse. Um, Manchester City are very regimented in how they play. Like, 
everyone's heard the Thierry Henry story of um, Pep Guardiola subbing him off because he scored a goal because he was in the wrong position that he was meant to be on the pitch. Uh, and that's like, that's who Guardiola is. He, he's a controller. He's the, the conductor. And if you're not doing what he wants, it doesn't matter if your improvisation was great. He doesn't care. He wants you doing what he wants. And I don't think Jack Grealish is that guy. I think he plays with a lot of freedom. And I think that's how you get the best out of him. So I I think that's that's probably why he signs a player like Mares rather than a Zaha or a Grealish or any players like that. He, he wants players that will follow tactical instructions to the T, even if they don't agree with him. Uh, and because he knows in the long run that's how they're going to get the best results is by everybody pulling in the same direction and singing from the same hymn sheet. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure on that. If he went to United, that would be an interesting one simply because, my, in, in my, my opinion, the big difference between Manchester United and Liverpool always has been, Liverpool's always been about the team, whereas Manchester United have always had a superstar. It's usually their number seven, but they've always had a superstar. Um, and they've always had like a Best or a Ronaldo or a Giggs or they've always had this superstar player that's like their star player, Cantona. So it's, um, he would fit in with that mold of them wanting to have a superstar and, and build him up to be the, the greatest in the league and give him total confidence in his abilities and everything run through him. But they've kind of already got that with Bruno, so I'm not sure they actually need it. But it would be interesting to see how it would work. Because, uh, yeah, if they can get uh, Grealish and Bruno both playing together and, and both uh, thriving, I guess, it would be interesting because it would give the opposition more than one problem to solve, which I guess is what happens when Pogba's on the pitch, is it gives them more than one uh, problem to solve in terms of um, players that play between the lines and, and have uh, intelligent um, movement and intelligent ideas on what to do with the ball. Um, anytime Pogba's on the pitch it sort of doubles that up for United which is why they tend to look even better I guess when both of them are on the pitch Yeah, that's that's pretty much fair as well and moving on to the last part of the podcast Stephen, Sheffield United last season they massively overperformed once again Chris Wilder, I mean what a season it was for him, this season it's been shambolic, it's been shambolic and I mean, you can't blame Wilder too much because he's tried to do as much as possible with the team that he has. They are not a very strong team financially, strong club financially, although they have like progressive thinking owners and they've been struck with injuries as well, pretty much like Liverpool and more. I mean, they've, they've missed uh, a lot of good players as well, key players as well through injury. And that's that's probably affected them pretty much. And they can't seem to get a point or even a win at all. They have like two points, if I'm not wrong. And that is pretty much, uh, I mean, I, I don't kind of have a word as well. I can't find a word as well right now to describe that because it's it's really, really bad. And you can't also feel, I mean, you, you probably feel too bad for Chris Wilder as well because... It's been pretty unlucky. So what do you think, Stephen, has been kind of the problem for them? Because they kind of seem to not be in a, in a comfortable position for most part of football matches. So game state is something that is being widely talked about in the football world right now, how it impacts different players, how it impacts different teams as well. And 
in terms of if you look at the game state and Sheffield United, they kind of are on the bottom in in that aspect as well. And do you think that is also another thing that is that is probably causing the downfall? Uh, yeah, um, the interesting thing for me, uh, I always see this basically, especially on on Twitter, um, but also a lot of journalists do this as well. People always want to to find a narrative and and prove it right, and therefore that's the the right answer, I guess. Um, and and for Sheffield United, there's been a lot of that this season. There's basically people saying it's this, it's this one thing, it's that. That's what's doing it. The reality is for Sheffield United, it's just lots and lots and lots of bad things all coming together. I remember, I remember you said to start a podcast about Derby being the worst team in the Premier League. But the team I always remember was Swindon Town, and and they were just abysmal. They they looked like a League One team playing in the Premier League every week, and they just didn't look organised, and and they were just utterly shambolic. And and that isn't the case for Sheffield United. Like Chris Wilder's a good coach. He was. He was rightly in the competition with Jurgen Klopp last season for the coach of the season because he's a very, very good coach. He's, he's doing a good job. He's just doing it with a, a low-quality group of players. And when Sheffield United come up, they didn't really sign many big players. I think Berg was probably their big signing and McBurney, but they, McBurney's also a player from the lower levels. So it's they didn't sign anybody that... that and the way the sort of leads did, I guess, they didn't send anybody that you think, wow, he's he's really a different quality to what they have, even though the leads players didn't bet in right away. But they, they didn't send any higher quality players, which means this season, now that those players they signed, they've betted in and you'd be getting their best performances out of them. They don't have that. They don't have anyone to take the team up another level. So that's kind of where they, they got stuck. Of course, the injuries didn't help as well, the O'Connell, but also... Lots of little things like um, in attack, their attacks all one year older, and their best attackers um, this season have been the likes of Mick Goldrick and um, Billy Sharp, and uh, they're all like in, in their mid thirties, um, sort of like thirty four, I think they are. Um, whereas the younger guys like uh, Musay's been injured pretty much most of the season. Um, Ryan Brewster needs to settle. Um, he'll probably be great for the next season if he stays. But um, he, he just needs a year to adjust to the Premier League. Um, I'm, I wouldn't write him off right away because that would be nuts. We've seen loads of players if this is the case. Loads of players have had a Ryan Brewster season before they actually come good. So it, it, it's, it's just lots of things that just compound the problem. Like their defence is worse than it was last year, but it's not that much worse. And so it's also their goalkeeper because Dean Henderson last, last year, was like up there with Allison in terms of the best goalkeeper in the league, in terms of all of the shot stopping metrics. Whereas um, uh, Ramsdale's numbers this season look like Kappa or Pickford. They're they're right there at the bottom in the bottom group of players. So to go from one extreme to the other is going to hurt you. So if your goalkeeper is underperforming when last season he was overperforming, and your defence is now performing a lot worse, and your attack is older and not functioning as well as it was last season and you're getting injuries that you didn't have last season and it's just lots of compounding problems that all add up and it just turns a team that were doing well and overperforming and they're doing worse but not that much worse but really underperforming and so it's just yeah it, it's just a hard season for them and I think it also just highlights that thing about you need the same quality players even if you don't use them right away you need the same quality players you need to sign them. You need to bed them in. 
so that whenever whenever you need to go up a level, whenever the players that are have done you well since promotion, but suddenly aren't because they're not Premier League quality, you have other players that you can bring in to improve the quality of players that are on the pitch. Um, and, and Sheffield United just don't have that. And it's it's really hard to watch, but yeah. And the other thing as well is, like, whenever you watch them, they're not getting hammered every week. They're losing by one or two goals. Like they're they're not. It's not like they're getting thrashed every week. I think they've only been beaten badly like once or twice this season. Like I think Liverpool um, beat them badly last season in a way that they haven't been beaten this season. Like the the game we had against them, where we just pulled them all over the pitch and, and just made them look look like a lower league team. I think that's probably the worst performance they've had since they were promoted, and it was last season. So, yeah, for me, they're not a Swindon, but their results are just awful. And I guess that's just the nature of the Premier League now, where uh, everything is just unforgiving. So if you're off the boil even a little, if you're at 95% instead of 100, as I said, it makes a huge difference. And that's just where Sheffield United are at now. All the little things that went for them last season are going against them. The attacks underperforming the goalkeepers underperforming their defense is worse and then once people lose confidence it becomes a compounding problem as well so our attack's not doing well we'll try to force things they create worse quality chances they score even less and it just goes on and on you end up in a, a vicious cycle that you just can't get out of um I, I don't know what the solution for them is i think at the moment they're at the point now where i think relegation looks inevitable i would be focusing on the young players and the players that are going to be there next season like um I wouldn't be I wouldn't be using loan players too much unless you plan to keep them next season. But the likes of Brewster, I would, I'd be giving him as much minutes as possible to see if he's going to be a, a guy that will get you get you promoted right again next season. Um, I'd, I'd be focusing on the other young kids. Um, I think giving older players more minutes that you probably aren't going to keep at the end of the season, I think that's going to help them much. But yeah, it's, it's a bad situation. Um, and I don't think it's Chris Wilder's fault. Um, I don't like the sort of blame thing that sort of happens in football anyway, but he's still a good coach. He just has a lot less quality to deal with, I guess, than a lot of the other teams yeah. around him. And and his, however good a coach he is, he he keeps them well organized. And, like they're not getting pulled apart and humiliated every week. He's he's doing the basics right, but he, he doesn't have the quality to, to get more out of them, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, in my opinion as well, I think they should actually stick with Chris Wilder and they should probably give him a season as well because I think he's really overachieved with the Sheffield United team in the last three years, back-to-back promotions and stuff. So, uh, not not back-to-back promotions, I guess, uh, but yeah, it's it's been massive, massive, massive for them. And Yeah, like if you... If you were to get rid of Chris Wilder, like who do you get in his place? Do you do you go into that sort of uh, relegation specialist ma- yeah. uh, merry-go-round, which ends you with like a Pardew or a Ian Holloway type? Like what? Or or do you go abroad and you end up with um, someone like uh, Carvalho at, at Swansea, and and he looks good initially, but then he struggles? Or maybe you get someone like um, uh, was it Paulo Sousa that they, they got initially and he transforms the club and takes them up another level so it's I mean the grass isn't always greener like they could they could get another manager and it, it transforms the club and takes them up a level but I think Chris Wilder's a really good coach I just think Sheffield United don't have the quality I think they probably needed to sign a Ryan Brewster type player last season uh, a, a young really talented player give him minutes here and there get him ready for this season where you, you unleash him and, and he's going to take you up another level. 
um, and, and they didn't really do that. And I think that's what they're missing, really. They're just missing someone who's who's good enough to play in the Premier League uh, uh, against all the other sides and, and stand out in those matches. Like Crystal Palace have Zaha and, and uh, Villa have Grealish and Sheffield United don't really have anyone. They don't really have a player that's going to... I can't think of a single player in their team that would dribble with the ball. Like, I can't think of one. Like, they have people in midfield who are press-resistant and can turn away from danger, but they don't have someone that's going to get the ball and run at someone and destroy them. And I, I just... I don't know how you can go into a Premier League season without that. But yeah, it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And coming on to the last question, uh, Stephen, this is again a patron question from Dieter. If you had to pick like five best signings of the season, who would your top uh, top five signings of the season be? That is the first question. And the second question being, who would you probably have in the top five at the end of the season? And also the relegation teams. So... So here's the thing, right? On that first question, this is something that's very interesting to me. I kind of said lots of times in this podcast about players needing time to bet in. And this season in particular is hard for new players because um, it was a rushed pre-season. So they didn't have really a pre-season. And and that's usually when you work on uh, new systems, betting in new players, getting them used to your um, teammates and everything else. And then... Because the team, the games have just been absolutely constant, there isn't really training sessions during the season. Uh, tra- sessions are usually just about rest and recovery, um, maybe about tactical preparation for the next game, but there isn't sessions to work on, like attacking drills, um, uh, build-up play, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And one of the consequences of that is, if you look at all the, the signings in the summer, uh, the big signings in the Premier League, generally they've done really badly. Um, or just being sort of mediocre. They haven't really lived up the expectations. And that's, again, that thing of, of how long it takes players to settle is exacerbated by the fact that we're in a really weird season where uh, teams have absolutely no time to work on anything new, which includes introducing new players in a way that sort of connects with the rest of the team. So um, the, the standout players this season have tended to be players that were signed last season. Um, and, and it'll probably be the same next season where players like Danny Welbeck and uh, Danny Wel- Danny Vanderbeek <laughs> and uh, Thiago yeah. and uh, uh, all of those guys that were signed this summer that have really just not had a, much of a chance yet um, and yeah. Thiago's is obviously down to injury of course but um, I think they'll be the standout players next season um, whereas this season the standout players are the players signed last season so, yeah, I think that's the way it is. I haven't really paid much attention to the um, players that were signed in the summer because that's just, I, I tend not to do that. I, I don't look at new signings for like a year. It's just my, uh, like a force of habit. I, I don't want to judge players early. So if I pay too much attention yeah. on them and focus on them, then I will. Like if you ask me right now, has uh, Danny Van de Beek been a good signing for United? No, he's been awful. But that's because he hasn't played and he hasn't time, had time to adjust. But if you ask me, will he be a good signing for United? I, I probably, yeah. He's a really good player. You see his quality every time he plays, but he just doesn't yeah. fit anything at all at United. Like he, he's like picking up Genie Wijnaldum and dropping him into um, uh, Manchester United at the moment, where like it just wouldn't work, and it wouldn't be Wijnaldum's fault, and it's not United's fault. It's just you're taking a player that does one thing, a specific role in a specific team and just dropping them in another team. And it would be the same if you drop Bruno in the R team. No one would, like, where would you play him as, like, an eight? So, like, would he take, say, Henderson's place? And he's obviously got a lot more quality than Henderson, but would Liverpool be a better team if you done that? 
Probably not because they're not set up to do that. So he'd end up getting caught ahead of the ball a lot more. Liverpool would be more open. They'd get countered more. It, it just that's the way it would be because you need to adjust your system to fit the players that you're you get. Uh, they aren't plug and play like FIFA. And I think a lot of people, I think a lot of people judge new signings way too harshly. I think people expect immediate results, and it just generally doesn't work that way. But this season in particular, it's definitely not going to work that way. I think the, the best players this season are, aren't going to be the players that were signed in the summer. Right. Sorry, that's a complete yeah. cop-out of an answer, but it's uh, <laughs> the most honest answer I have, I guess. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair, actually. That's, that's really fair because, yeah, I mean, in this, in this particular world right now, I, I think patience is something that the fans, every single fan uh, probably, or every single fan base, I would say, in general, lacks even if it's a manager or even if it's a new signing, if if you don't get instant results or instant impact, immediately you hear people calling for the heads and stuff. So which is which is also again quite uh, silly. So yeah, I mean that's that's actually a fair answer. But if if you I mean moving that I don't know actually that brings me to the second question as well from data. Who do you think would finish in the top five and who do you think would finish in the bottom three? Just, just, a, just a prediction from you. Um, I think Liverpool, Manchester United and Manchester City are the three that I'm, I'm sure will finish in the top five. And then it's a question of whether Brendan Rodgers or Mourinho will implode or not, because they always typically do so. Uh, it's just a case of whether it's like now or later. Um, so uh, either of those. And if both of them implode, can Chelsea sneak in there? I don't know, Southampton and Everton are, and Villa are all sort of, they, they don't have the same amount of quality, I guess, as all those other teams. So the fourth one's really hard to call. I'd probably go with Mourinho if pushed because he just has, he just has the most experience of, of getting, getting what he needs out of, out of games to get what he wants. Um, uh, and uh, I don't think Lampard and, and Brendan Rodgers uh, have that knack of just getting what they need out of games, whereas uh, Mourinho does, and I think that's a very underrated quality. Uh, that sort of about the sort of game management, I guess. Um, and yeah, and he'll also. I think his team's a lot more cynical, and the, and they're all, always dabble in the dark arts. We've seen it at pretty much every team he plays for, but it, it gives you those fine margins that get you results, I guess, as well. Um, so yeah, my money would be on Tottenham for the the other spot in the top four. Um, oh, we said top five, so I guess um, I'll go with Chelsea. I think they just have too much quality to fail. I think they'll just end up beating up all the the weaker teams again and and ending up in the top five. So yeah, I'll go I'll go with those that five. Bottom uh, yeah. bottom three. Uh, it's really hard to look beyond the three that are down there, which is. I don't really like that as an answer because it's not really any insight. But Sheffield United look like like they're done, and, and West Brom I just always thought, thought didn't have enough quality for the Premier League. Um, to be honest, I thought they'd be a lot lower than they are. And even though Sam Allardyce has come in, I think nothing's changed. That they just don't have enough quality for this league. I think this will be the year he finally knows how to get results out of out of games in it again in a way that will get them enough points probably to be okay. Um, Newcastle are just an awful, horrific team to watch. Um, I wouldn't inflict it on anybody, except for when um, uh, Max Eminen's playing. 
I, I really enjoy watching him, but they're just such a... For, and it's been ever since he took charge. They're just such Davis. a really boring thing to watch. But they'll exactly, probably yeah. also... They probably also just have that enough quality to, to stay up. Players like Callum Wilson, Ryan Fraser, he hasn't really settled in yet because, uh, as I said, but um, uh, I think also Almiron. I like Almiron, um, even though he doesn't get much end product, but he's very effective at, at getting the ball there, I guess. He's he's very tricky to mark. He's very good movement. He takes up good spaces and moves defenders around a lot. I think he's very, very hard to play against. I think they do better when he's in the team, even if he doesn't have good numbers. Um, and the same with Joel Linton as well. I think he's, he's effective without getting the numbers for himself. So um, I think they've got a lot of quality players in attack, and that usually is the difference between maybe staying up and not staying up. Um, I think Potter's a good manager. He'll probably eke out enough points for Brighton as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I can't. I just can't see past Fulham, West Brom and Sheffield United. Um I think they'll be quite a bit adrift by the end of the season, like maybe seven or eight points between them and 17. They just, none of them have any real quality in their team um, to make a difference. Uh, yeah, those those three would be my pick as well. I think Scotty Parker's, despite his uh, improvements, I think would would probably be the one to go down along with Sam, Big Sam's uh, West Brom and obviously Sheffield United this season. I think it's also interesting that the bottom seven teams in the league are all uh, are all English managers. Um, uh, I think it's there's two ways of looking at that, of course. But uh, one way would be that uh, English managers tend not to be a, appointed at clubs that have a lot of quality players. But also, uh, I, I think there's a glass ceiling with English managers that um, that they struggle to break through because you need to have you need to build a system that's going to dominate the ball and dominate the opposite team and have uh, very good in transitions um, and these are all things that are sort of newer to English football um, where for years they were wrongly following the principle of getting it long, getting it forward early, etc, etc. So I think um, maybe the younger generation of English coaches coming through will be better but um, I think whenever you appoint a manager like Sam Allardyce is probably a great example. He, he tends to do just enough to get teams out of relegation but the football is miserable to watch because it's it's very basic and, and very uh, very direct. And then they, they tend to hit a glass ceiling and the fans want more than just results. And as soon as results stop coming and they hit the slightest bad patch, immediately it turns against them and they get sacked. So um, the fact that like Hodgson, Dyche, Bruce, uh, Allardyce, um, Scott Parker, the fact that all them are at the bottom, it's not really a surprise to me. Um, uh, they, I think whenever you have a, a coach like that, they always end up sort of muddling around and, and sort of just getting enough points to stay in mid-table. And then if they have a bad season, they'll drop into the relegation battle and, and the fans will not be happy about it. So yeah, I think that's an interesting one as well. The only big surprise, I guess, is is the, the difference in points between, say, first and tenth. Like, technically, West Ham are probably in a title race because they're only like seven points off top. David Moses, David Moses, finally, you know, fulfilling the, you know, the prophecy of being the chosen one from Sir Alex. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I did an article the other the other week. It was basically just saying how no team is on has title winning form this season. Um, like everyone's in a title challenge because because nobody is putting up title winning form. Like uh, if Liverpool were playing at the sort of form they have been for the last three seasons. 
Um, they'd probably be like 10 points, 10 points clear at the moment. They're seven points clear at least. Um, and then the only teams that would be in with a uh, talk of a title challenge would be United and Leicester. But because nobody's putting up title winning form and um, literally the whole league is, is just a few points off top, even down as far as Crystal Palace, only 11 points behind. They're like as close to the title as they are to relegation, which is just ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And that actually brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much, Stephen, for coming on once again to the podcast. It has been a pleasure speaking to you after such a long time. Likewise. Um, we'll have to do it again as well. Uh, yeah. It's always good fun. Definitely. And I, and, I, I, and I actually hope that we get to do it after we do, after we lift number 20. And Chris is also present then so that we could actually put some uh, salt <laughs> into the Evertonian. <laughs> that would be nice. You can, you can yeah. talk about us winning the double. Yeah. <laughs> that, would, that would be actually extra fun. <laughs> yep and thank you once again to all our listeners as well for tuning in to our episode your support means so much to us thank you for all the support as well and I hope you all have a great 2021 so until the next episode bye bye take care